Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hi, I am Mo Fong, and I'm the Executive Director for SDVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, and I'm here to welcome you to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. And it's wonderful to see you. This series is sponsored by SDVP and BASIS, which is the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Collins for ETL, and I have a wonderful bio for her. She is amazing. Julia is the founder and CEO of Plan and Forward, the leading climate management platform for consumer companies, empowering the next generation of sustainable brands through its proprietary data and software. Planet Forward reduces the cost and complexity of creating sustainable products. The platform provides consumer companies with the tools to understand and reduce their carbon footprint to align with the Paris Agreement. The platform is inspired by Planet Forward's own snack brand, Moonshot, which launched in 2020 as the first climate-friendly snack brand. Moonshot was recently acquired by Patagonia Provisions, a first for Patagonia in more than 20 years. A serial entrepreneur, Julia, previously co-founded Zoom Pizza, where she became the first black woman unicorn when she created a venture-backed tech company valued at over a billion dollars. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur, she served as vice president and chief operating officer at Harlem Jazz Enterprises, which holds the Cecil, an Afro-Asian brasserie, and Minton's, a historic jazz supper club. While there, the Cecil won Best New Restaurant of the Year. Earlier in her career, she built industry-leading food companies in New York City. Serving as a leader, she grew brands such as Union Square Hospitality Group, Mexicu, and Murray's Cheese. In addition to leading Planet Forward, Julia sits on the Climate Collaborative Board, the Food for Climate League Board, and the Advisory Council for Launch with GS. She is also an active angel investor focused on funding female entrepreneurs and BIPOC founders. Julia is also an ambassador for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. And Julia holds a BA in Biomedical Engineering from Harvard and an MBA from Stanford. So we're welcoming you back. And she resides in San Francisco with her two sons and partner. So everyone, please join me in welcoming Julia to ETF. We're going to set the stage a little bit. So as I was reading your bio, definitely there's a food theme throughout. And there was a wonderful Forbes article, if you haven't seen it, it basically says how one woman with a box of crackers aims <laughs> to save the planet. So can you tell us a little bit more? What did you think when you saw that title? And then also, <laughs> how did you get the idea for Planet Forward? Yeah, I mean, when I think I when I saw the title, my initial reaction was, you know, no pressure. Just trying to save the planet with a box of crackers. But um. You know, I'm not unique in my passion and connection to food. I think most people, it's like maybe 97% of the humans who I interact with have some love of food and the 3% who don't, I just don't have any interest in them. <laughs> I guess there's some people that survive on Soylent, but very few. And um, for me, it really came from my grandparents. They um, moved to the Bay Area during the Great Migration, which as many of you know, was a time in U.S. history when millions of black people were migrating from the south to the north, <clears throat> mostly to take advantage of new economic opportunities. Um, 
But this was also a time when northern cities were heavily, heavily segregated. And so my grandparents, who were trained as dentists, actually moved to the Bay Area to start a dental practice where all people were welcome, everyone from every race and walk of life. And, um, you know, this idea of serving people and this idea of equality really was the through line in that practice and in their lives. And so you could imagine when you're really focused on service and equality, one of the best ways to express that you're serving people, that you're serving all people is through food. And so we just had this life growing up where, you know, we didn't lock our door, everyone was welcome, there was always something cooking. And so I suppose I grew up always believing that sort of the the best moments in my life or the times when I felt the most human and the most connected to others um, was when I was sharing food with them. But I will say that um, when I first shared with my family that I wanted to go into food, it was a hard no. It wasn't even a conditional no. And so I sort of went off to Harvard to study biomedical engineering, came to Stanford to study business. And I think part of what I was doing there was trying to hedge the risk, not so much for myself, but for my parents and grandparents who were in some way subsidizing this crazy idea that I had to be a food entrepreneur. So it's something that is authentic to me to want to work in the space of food and technology, but it really did take Mo some time for me to grow into my confidence that I could make a career in the area that I had this passion. I think a lot of students could resonate with that. I studied chemical engineering and then went off to be a high school teacher. It's like, wait, what are you going to do, right? So it's wonderful. You studied biomedical engineering and then went off and did amazing things in the food industry. So tell us how you got the idea for Planet Forward, though. Yeah, so the description of Planet Forward has like a couple of terms that I think are worth unpacking. The first is this idea of climate management software. Like, what is that? I think probably the space that most people have familiarity is carbon accounting. This idea that we can use data and software to measure the greenhouse gas emissions intensity or impact of any thing, any organization, any physical product. And this was sort of like a sleepy area of accounting for many years until the most recent sort of wave of net zero commitments where massive consumer companies have pledged to reduce their carbon emissions to zero and then in the next, you know, less than a decade. And so all of a sudden, this very sleepy industry of carbon accounting, which by the way was controlled mostly by consultants, has being disrupted. And it's being disrupted by companies like Planet Forward that are leveraging big data and building really sort of intelligent software to be able to do the work of consultants more quickly and efficiently. So that is sort of what Planet Forward does. You know, the value proposition is carbon accounting that's faster and more efficient than previous methods. Um, the reason why I'm working in this space is because I'm just incredibly passionate about being able to create a scalable solution to addressing the third, like a 34% of global greenhouse gas emissions that come from food systems. You know, often when we think about the climate crisis, we focus on transportation and energy and manufacturing as the sectors where we need to work on, you know, decarbonization. And of, of course we need to, I would not say that we shouldn't focus on decarbonizing, you know, transportation or energy. But with a third of global greenhouse gas emissions coming from land use and food systems, what I saw was that there was really a lack of investment in this area. And although, um, you know, there were many companies that needed decarbonization solutions in food, there really weren't any tools to serve them. And so that is why I decided to build Planet Forward and to build it not as a services business, but as a technology business. 
So why start with measurement? Why not just go after the solution itself and decrease those carbon emissions? Yeah, I mean, in order to um, employ a decarbonization strategy, which is essentially what are the ways that we can remove greenhouse gas emissions from our farming, this, I'm talking about in the case of food, um, manufacturing, retailing, distributing, you have to first know where you are, right? You can't improve anything that you can't first measure. And the problem with the sort of incumbent solutions is that they created these measurements that had no um, granularity or transparency to them. So essentially, the way traditional carbon accounting works, if you really want to know, is you take a look at the purchase data for a given organization, how much you spent on pencils and pens and whatever it may be, and you multiply those purchases times an emissions factor. So like a generic emissions factor for, let's say, asparagus all over the world. But as you can probably you know, sense, there, no two asparagus are actually the same. It depends on where they were grown, how they were grown, what methods were used. Did you use pesticides? Did you use renewable energy? And so the incumbent solutions that were relying on broad averages were really not well designed to be able to facilitate decarbonization, actually understanding how to change your packaging or change your energy usage or change your farming practices. And so what we wanted to do at Planet Forward was to bring a lot more rigor and a lot more integrity to the practice of carbon accounting. And we had to start with measurement first. You can't improve what you don't first measure, but we needed to improve the way the measurement happened in order to create decarbonization strategies, essentially. Perfect. Well, we're in the School of Engineering, so I think all of us <laughs> love to nerd out a little bit on measurement and this notion of you got to know how to measure something in order to improve it, I think resonates across everyone's fields. You know, it's interesting. It's just about a year ago you said that we have less than 100 months to reduce planet emissions by 40% in order to stave off the worst of what will happen if our planet's temperature continues to rise. And that was a about a year ago that we have 100 months left. So where Few, are we Fewer now? than 100 Yeah, months. so now yeah. where are we and what do you think about the urgency of this problem? Yeah, I mean, you know, the urgency grows and, and I'll talk to you about the urgency, but I'll also talk to you about why I remain optimistic because I think it's always important to present both sides of that framework, right? Um, I, I made that statement in May of 2022, and I think many of you who are following the space around climate change saw the most recent updates to the IPCC, which say that there's greater than a 50% chance that we will sail right by the one and a half degree um, temperature rise that we're all predicting um, sometime before 2040, right? So we are well on our way there. Um, and so the situation has gotten worse and not better. Um, but at the same time, you know, I sense and also um, experience a much higher level of interest in decarbonization than I did when I was starting this business five years ago. You know, when I launched this idea, very few people were interested, frankly. Investors hadn't really built their thesis around, you know, what climate tech was, right? Mm. They were sort of feeling burned from the first wave of green tech where a lot of people lost a lot of money. And, um, you know, large global organizations were sort of trying to offset their way out of the climate crisis, essentially purchasing carbon removal credits or carbon offsets to get to zero. Um, whereas now, you know, five years later, we have, you know, large customers that are working with us. We've had, you know, a, a huge interest from investors. 
And there are trillions of dollars that are going into the space of climate tech and of other decarbonization strategies. So I am seeing a massive acceleration, which makes me optimistic, but at the same time, we really do have to go faster. And so if there's like one reason why I'm here, you know, one wish that I would have from being in this audience is that somehow my story might motivate more of you to go into the space of climate tech. I think it's a really exciting field to, to build within. And there's so many opportunities available, particularly for people who have that engineering background and mindset. How many of you are interested in climate tech entrepreneurship? Just to kind of get, wow, that's almost half the room, right? And so we're going to get into a set of questions about what is it like to be an entrepreneur in climate tech? And you mentioned that there's a lot of money going into climate tech right now. So what was your experience raising capital for Planet Forward? And did you have any negotiables or non-negotiables as you were raising capital? Yeah. So, you know, this really isn't my first rodeo, Mo. I think you mentioned in the introduction that I'm, you know, sort of the first black woman to have co-founded a unicorn company, which in and of itself isn't tremendously interesting. I don't like value myself based on the valuation of any company that I that I founded. But it, it does mean that I have had um, quite a lot of experience being a founder who's raising capital. So I will tell you that back in the days of um, Mexicu, the food truck business that I had in New York City, I did not have any access to venture capital or even bank debt. We completely bootstrapped that business. And I'm talking about like three founders, not paying ourselves, crashing in an apartment, like using our credit cards to buy inventory and then selling through the inventory as fast as we could. But that business is now 12 years old and thriving. And um, I will say that that venture capital really wasn't the right um, uh, funding instrument for that kind of business. This is like a you know food truck to bricks and mortar. And had we taken on venture capital, we wouldn't have been able to achieve the kind of return that those venture investors would have expected. Mm -hmm. And so maybe my hard no's or the places where I set a hard line is for a business that I'm building, understanding what is the right capital strategy for that business. We often talk about how can we raise money or how can we raise venture money, but I also do a lot of angel investing. I've done, I think, 26 deals in the last four years. And, and, and for many investors, many um, startups who, who I, I, I don't wind up investing in, it is not because they don't have a great idea. It's because the business that they're creating, while it may be highly valuable, is not well suited to create the kind of four to 10x returns that are expected on a four to seven year venture horizon. Mm -hmm. So my first thing is understand what's, don't ask yourself, how can I raise money or how can I raise venture capital? Ask yourself, what is the right capital strategy for my business? That could be a combination of grants and other awards. It could be you know, some ability to build an early solution that generates revenue. I think two to 3% of all the businesses that you can build are, are actually appropriate for venture. It's a very small slice. And it is, I think also, I describe it as like a very narrow karma. To be a venture-backed founder means that you operate in a pretty narrow lane. Sometimes we think about founders just having like this, like these huge visions and these expansive ranges. But actually, when you have you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind you that needs to be returned, you know, at four to ten x the investment in a very short horizon, you don't have a lot of amplitude. Whereas if you were to take on a scrappier approach to raising money, you might find yourself having a bit more flexibility. So that isn't to say that I don't support venture capital as a catalytic instrument for building businesses. I just think there's some caveats that are really important to think about. 
Sounds like that degree of control that you would like to have to make decisions is really highly dependent on who you're getting funding from, too. That's right, because essentially your investors become your board, and then you as the CEO founder, you know, go and work for the board. So maybe the other thing that I'd say, you know, and this is me, you know, at 44 years old, having had lots of chances at this, I've been up to bat lots of times. My hard no's are really around the people behind the money. And I have said no to investors who I didn't think um, I could align with from a values perspective, you know. Um, I remember at one point I was pregnant with my second son and I was like, really pregnant? Not that you can be really pregnant or not really pregnant, but I was just saying I was really showing. Yeah. Um, and I could see that the investor was just highly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And he asked a lot of like risk mitigating questions around like how I was going to handle being a founder and being a mom. Mind you, I've already done this once. And this was a very well-respected investor from a very big fund, and he could have written a large check to lead. And although I felt like I successfully got him over his nervousness about me being a pregnant founder, I nonetheless remained really concerned about my ability to work with somebody who couldn't understand that we all have, you know, a big life and, and you're more than just a founder. You can be a founder who's a parent or a founder who does these does other things. And so that's an example of me saying no to an investor because I didn't think the values were aligned. I will tell you that when I was out raising, you know, 14 years ago, I probably didn't have that same confidence. Um, frankly, I probably would have said yes to that investor. Um, and so that's just one of the things that I've learned over time is it's not just the size of the check or the fund that's writing it. It's really the person who's behind the investment and whether or not you feel like you want to work with them. You know, it's interesting. How did you figure out what your values were and how to be able to articulate and then test whether the people you're going to be working with share the same values? Oh, my personal values or the values yes. of my organization? Both. Oh, that's such a good question. Well, you know, I suppose... The values that I have as a person come from my my family and my parents, and I think our, our traditions. And so um, there is a value around service, and there's a value around integrity. There's also a value around joy, yeah, and um, being able to do work that lights you up and that lights other people up. And so those are my personal values, and, and those are important. Those are my guide. But I believe... Um, as a founder, you also need to make sure that your organization has values. And those values may um, overlap with some of the things that you hold internally, but organizational values meet um, a different need. Organizational values, in my opinion, are really in place to ensure that the company has an aligned point of view on how you do your work. Mm -hmm. uh, not just what you do, not just why you do it, but how you do it. So at Planet Forward, for example, we have a value around grace, which means that we um, operate in a way that reflects that other people are valuable and that we um, ourselves are valuable. We have a value around clarity, which means that we have a bias for documentation and we have a real process orientation, right? We articulate things very clearly. And so having those values as an organization, I think is tremendously important to being able to hire the right people and bring the right investors on board. And in the absence of being able to articulate your values, no one can actually understand what you stand for. And that's, that's problematic. Yeah, for sure. But it sounds like you've already codified them and it's helping you make decisions. And, you know, we've talked so far about how do you make decisions in funding, hiring. I wanted to ask you a question about product decisions, mm. right? Because you could have taken this product in many different ways and, you know, measuring emissions, there's different levels, right, that you can measure. And so I've been learning about scope one, two, and three. So 
maybe you can talk about, you know, what is scope one, two, three emissions and measurements? And then how do you decide when to take your product ideas and make them narrow and pursue that or widen it so to capture more customers per se? Oh, that's so such how, a good question. How do you question. figure that out? Yeah. So forgive me for the folks in the room who already know this, but, you know, when you think about measuring the greenhouse gas emissions related to an organization, first you have to set a system boundary. What is, what is the organization? How do you define it? And then you divide the scopes into three. So the first is your um, scope one emissions, which are your direct emissions. Those are the emissions that are related to you directly procuring your services. So if you had a trucking company, those are the emissions related to you driving the trucks that you own on the road. And then the scope two is your indirect emissions. This is energy that you're purchasing from the grid, heat, gas, so on and so forth. But the third category of emissions is called scope three, and this is becoming like the hot topic. I think everyone is interested in scope three decarbonization because scope three is everything else. Everything that is not direct or indirect, what might that be? That is your supply chain. So of all the things in scope three, the hardest one for people to get their arms around from a measurement and decarbonization perspective is, is the supply chain. Well, so, so making this real, like your box of crackers, right? If you yeah. look at the list of ingredients, you're going to have to measure where the carbon emissions are coming from for each of those ingredients, the box itself, like that's a lot to measure. It's a lot to measure. And if you are any consumer company, whether you're making crackers or you're making sneakers, or you're making watches, you know, 90% or more of your emissions typically come from scope three. So if you've set a net zero goal, meaning that you want your organization to be at net zero by 2030, and 90% of that needs to come from your scope three, then you really need a tool that helps you to do that. And so the reason, the product decision that we made at Planet Forward was to um, build a set of tools that uh, was on top of a very rich data set that I acquired, and we can talk a bit about the role of M&A in startups, um, that allowed me to be able to measure scope three with um, much more rigor than um, incumbent solutions. So that was like a product decision. There was also a go-to-market decision involved in that, right? So do we play vertically, meaning we're obsessed with consumer businesses, which is, by the way, massive markets, food, fashion, beauty, or do we go horizontal and work with data companies and banks and consulting companies? And we made a very aggressive decision to take a vertical approach because of the product market fit. So the product that we designed is very good at decarbonizing um, uh, scope three, so supply chains. And that doesn't really matter if you are a data company, you don't have a big supply chain, but it matters a lot if you are PepsiCo or Unilever. And so the product decision and the go-to-market decision were hand in hand. Yeah. Is there any frameworks you can share with us in terms of how you make decisions around the types of products that you would want to design for, or you know, hmm. is it, yeah. Yeah, well, the decision-making framework itself that we use at Planet Forward is pretty light, but it is important within teams to be able to signal where you are in the continuum of making a decision. So something that we say is, you know, is this an idea? Is this a proposal or is this a decision? Mm -hmm. And that creates a lot of clarity within the team, especially when you're brainstorming or you're working you know, very quickly across multiple projects. It's important to be able to signpost and signal, oh, Mo, this is just an idea. I just want to get this out versus this is a proposal. I'd like for us to be able to price this and scope it. Or in some cases, like this has been decided and I'm communicating it as a decision. 
In general, you know, I think we are very inspired by design thinking when we think about the way to bring products to market, in particular human-centered design. So before we had any perspective on Moonshot as a cracker product or Planet Forward as a data and software platform, we just did a lot of listening. And, and by we, I mean the early team. So myself, one other MBA who I hired, um, really just did a, a, a very, like, uh, methodical customer discovery sprint. We talked to 50 chief sustainability officers working in companies to understand what their needs were, what their motivations were, what the incumbent solutions were. And we used that customer discovery to create sort of an initial perspective on what we could build. And then we did some really rough prototyping to be able to test it with real users. And so we used Figma and some other tools to be able to sort of create um, uh, a, a, a sample product and then got that in front of users and had them tinkering with it. And then from that, that we developed a, sort of a quick application. So it was actual software. But again, we, we sprinted like maybe six weeks developing it. And then we figured out, would people pay anything for it? Would people pay even $1,000 for this solution? And so it was just really this, you know, we've heard this, this framework a lot of times to, you know, to test, to rapid prototyping, testing, and iterating. And we very much did that. And I think that is the right way to build products. Absolutely. And now a lot of people are paying for your product. And so we can talk about scaling, right? So how do you scale? And you touched upon M&A, right? So most time people think, oh, if I want to scale, I get more money, I you know, hire more people, and then I build more products, more features, and then you scale in that way and get more customers. But this notion of M&A is not just an exit strategy, right? It's actually potentially a way to scale too. So how did you decide to use M&A in your scaling strategy? Yeah, I mean, so the question that we were asking ourselves was, for this set of data that we needed. So essentially our dream was to have a set of data that was essentially the carbon footprint for absolutely anything in the global supply chain, like everything, buttons and zippers and asparagus, literally everything. That's kind of a crazy set of data to imagine existing, except for we found a team that had been building toward that over 15 years. And when we encountered that team and we had a peek under the hood, we asked ourselves the question, not should we buy this company, but you know, now that we have evidence that such a set of data kind of does exist in the world in some fashion, should we build it ourselves? Should we buy it or should we partner with the solution? So it was really not an M&A or not question, it was a build, buy, or partner yeah. question. I talked to you a bit about those early customer discovery sprints that we did, but in one of them, we um, tested um, using uh, sort of partner data versus internal data that we had developed, not for all of the global supply chain, but for, for a very small set. And we just tested the differences, the differences in the outcomes, the difference in the, in the customer experience. And um, then we took a look at how long it would take us and how much capital it would take for us to build the data on our own. Then we took a look at the market dynamics and how quickly the space was heating up. And we estimated that by purchasing this company and their data, we accelerated our product development by about 24 months, which is material when you think about fundraising cycles and the speed with which this carbon accounting uh, market is moving. Um, 
But there's so many other, and those are easy things to quantify, or, or relatively easy, easy, knowable. And there are some other things that are very hard to quantify, like is there values alignment between your organization and the organization that you're buying? Is there incentive alignment? What are the risks? And so um, in addition to being able to figure out, should we buy this, you know, what's the right price? We also had to figure out, you know, for the party on the other side, is this a win for, for that person? In the end, it was the person who founded the company came over to be our CTO on an interim basis until we integrated all the data into our solution. But um, I guess I wouldn't want to say that it'll work every time. You know, I think the, the initial way that you talked about sort of building and raising does work a lot. And there's some special cases where acquiring another company may work. We acquired based on wanting data. In other cases, some people will do aqua hires or acquire a company to get a very special team. And that, again, is an elegant solution, but I'll say probably not the most common way to build a team. And are there any thoughts or tips about scaling companies that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess the caveat that I'd want to raise here is that I am sort of like the zero to 100 founder you know, in terms of, of revenue. And so the perspective that I can give really is in those early stages, you know, sort of pre-seed, maybe to series C or D. I don't have the perspective of, you know, having an IPO or, and, and in some cases I have had an acquisition, such as the case of Moonshot. Um, you know, you, you have to, you have to um, be able to build the proper structure within the company, not just the product in order to scale it. Because as you scale, you scale everything that exists including mistakes and misalignments and gaps in your, you know, processes. And so before you can scale, you have to first grow a little bit, right? You have to dial in your people processes. And I think sometimes, you know, earlier in my career, I underestimated the importance of really good people management, you know, talent management, culture, all of that stuff. As you begin to scale, it becomes harder and harder to wrap your arms around an entire organization. So you really do have to build that connective tissue early on, particularly because after a certain point, you can't hold everything as the founder or as the entrepreneur, right? You have to have a team that can hold just as much as you're holding. Otherwise, it just becomes burdensome. So yeah, so I guess the framework there is to make sure that you grow a little bit before you scale and that you really do try to shore up any blind spots or any gaps in your in your organization before you decide to pour more fuel onto that fire and, and let it grow. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Julia. I think it's interesting about accelerating, right? Like pour, pouring more gas is like the accelerant, you know, that you need to grow that company. But in terms of other ways of accelerating, right? Like you have to take into context the environment, like climate change, is accelerating fast. Climate tech is accelerating. The regulations in this area is accelerating and changing very quickly. So how do you keep up with all of this, right? Change and the, the speed of change and how does that factor in to how you're running the company and making product decisions? I, I, I feel this tension a lot, actually. There's often so much more that I'm interested in than I can actually do. Um, and I think I often feel that I'm pulled in different directions, you know, even within my organization, new features, new markets, but focus really is the most important thing for me in terms of being able to speed up and go faster. And so cultivating a practice of being able to identify when to say no 
um, both in terms of what you sign up for to do personally, but also what you decide to do as a company. For example, at Planet Forward, our technology, we can measure anything, right? So I talked to you a little bit about the decision to go deep instead of going wide, but even with that deep you know, vertical orientation of consumer, we can do food and beverage, we can do fashion, we can do beauty. Actually, the technology is agnostic, we can measure anything, but we had to make a focused go-to-market decision in order to be able to move quickly in the direction of our market. So we decided to focus in on food and beverage because we thought we had a bit of an unfair advantage there, my background, our investors. But within food and beverage, there are like 50 different subcategories, food service, quick serve, I mean, uh, quick service, fast casual, CPG, uh, meal delivery kits. I mean, it can blow your mind. But if we serve too many stakeholders um, or attempt to, it really slows us down. You know, we don't get the learnings as quickly. We don't fine tune our messaging and marketing as well. And so we are frankly still at Planet Forward cultivating a discipline around focus so that we can speed up. But without that, you sort of find yourself making slow progress across multiple areas as opposed to really being able to tackle them in, in quick sequence. Focus, that's really key. How do you think about regulations and how do you work with regulators so that you can be more focused and not go so fast that you start breaking things, right? Is, is, do you see the regulations as being the guardrails or do you see it as being the barriers to innovation? In our space, you know, there are some places where we are very, well, I'll say from my perspective, I'm very keen to see some increasing regulation. I think um, an example is the SEC climate rule, which we've seen just a first glimpse at. And everyone is sort of watching the space very intently, like popping popcorn and just like waiting to see what's going to happen. Many people expect that there will be some news in July. The reason why this is a big deal is that it would essentially impose a um, framework for demanding that companies over a certain size report out on their scope one, their scope two, and their scope three. And you might ask, like, why is this a hotly debated piece of regulation? And it is because many people feel that the scope three piece poses an undue burden on organizations. And so there's a massive amount of energy around limiting the SEC climate rule to just scopes one and two. But of course, y'all probably know where I stand. I want everyone to have to measure their scope three, not just because it creates more business for me, but because 90% of impact for these companies is often living in their scope three. And so if we're not requiring any measurement, then we're probably not facilitating any decarbonization. That is an example of where policy could be a, a massive accelerator to my business. Do I have time to like lobby in Washington for this? No, but I do strategically make sure to place myself in rooms where I have the ability to demonstrate how our technology could make it possible, right? So I'm not there saying you should do this or you should not do this. I'm there saying, were you to require that scope three um, must be uh, measured, here are some of the technology solutions that could get you there. And I'm not just there with myself, I'm there with my competitors. All of us saying like, listen, here's a whole industry that can actually serve this need so that I can eliminate that as one of the barriers. So that's an example of the way that you as an entrepreneur need to be aware of regulation in your space and participating in the regulation conversation, even if you don't have the resources to go, you know, lobby on Washington. Absolutely, awesome. Well, we are going, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we are going to open it up for questions from the audience and also on YouTube live stream. So get your questions ready. Uh, my question here is you saw like half the room is interested in climate tech entrepreneurship, which is awesome. And then for the other half, if you were going to 
you know, encourage them to check this out or even just entrepreneurships in general, because they're maybe kind of hesitant or a little risk adverse. What would you say to students who don't know where to start? What would I say to students who don't know where to start? Okay, but are passionate about starting somewhere. Yeah. Okay, okay, because that's the first thing that I was going to say, which is like always a little bit controversial. But I think sometimes we glorify entrepreneurship and we like hold it above like everything else that you could mm. do in your career. And the fact is, like, there are so many other amazing things you can do in your career, and you know, being an entrepreneur is one of them. But being an entrepreneur within an organization and creating change within organizations is equally exciting. But for those who have already said, this is my thing, I'm going to do it, you know, I think you just got to do it. Like you have to get it out of your head and get it into something that's tangible. Um, Michael Seibel from Y Combinator gave me the best advice a few years ago because I kept coming to him talking about my ideas and my ideas. And he's a pretty frank guy. And he's like, you know what, Julia, you realize your ideas don't really matter, right? I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what he came, what he explained, you know, as we continued the conversation was like, it's it's great to have a good idea, but it's really your ability to execute on that idea and to refine it and to and to continue to refine it over time. That that is the the thing that's special. It isn't just having a great idea. Nonetheless, I think for those of us that spend a lot of time in our heads, as I do, it is important to have a process for getting your ideas out. So I keep a journal. If you saw my bag that's in the back, I keep a journal just where I'm constantly getting ideas out, whether they're company ideas or product ideas or whatever it is. So having a practice where you can, um, you know, funnel those ideas into something that lives outside of your brain is really important, even if it's just a piece of paper. I think also, you know, building around you a a group of friends who are similarly interested in entrepreneurship is important because at a certain point, you're just going to look crazy to a lot of people. You know, there there comes a point in your entrepreneurial journey where you are either like the smartest person in the room or people think you're absolutely crazy and your ideas nuts. And so you need people around you that can kind of keep you balanced in that way. And then, you know, just never underestimate the power of building something. That, that people can actually hold in their hands and react to because absent of being able to see those interactions, you're just biased by your own ideas of, 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 of what the thing could be. And then maybe the final thing that I'd say is, you know, sometimes I, I talk to people who are like, there's so many things that I, I have so many ideas, right? And I think, I think many of them are viable. You know, you have to find the thing that you're just so in love with the problem because the solution is going to change a zillion times. Planet Forward was first a regenerative ingredient marketplace, and then it was a cracker company, and then it became a, you know, the solution has changed over time as we're just getting smarter about what we're doing, but the passion is solving climate change. Like, that has not changed, and I'm so in love with this problem that I can almost be agnostic and open as to the solution and just use data and sensing to be able to get there. Um, if you're too married to what the product is going to be before you're in love with what the problem it's trying to solve, then you might find yourself in a situation where you're building something that nobody really needs or cares about. So find a problem that you love to solve. If you have a lot of ideas, get it out and then just do it, right? I think that's <laughs> great advice. So we're going to take some questions from the room. Um, if you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get a microphone to you. My question is on the basis of carbon points. We've seen companies buying carbon points and they continue to produce carbon and some, some companies being carbon negative and supplying points. Is there a way around it or then just a policy decision? What's your take on that? Hmm. 
I tend to be pretty skeptical about the power of either carbon offsets or carbon removal credits as a true climate strategy. I think there are not enough high quality carbon offset projects on the planet for us to just offset our way out of the climate crisis. You know, we can't just buy things and make it go away. And I feel pretty passionately about this. Nonetheless, um, I'd say about a quarter of my customers are interested in achieving carbon neutrality either for like a product or for their organization. And where they are, what's really important is for them to focus on reducing emissions first. So like everything that you can do to decarbonize within your organization. And then for those unavoidable emissions, right? Because we still live within the law of thermodynamics. There are always going to be unavoidable emissions to leverage carbon offsets like a laser, you know, to really just shave off that little bit of unavoidable emissions at the end. And where they do, it's really important to vet those um, carbon offset projects, not just by the provider, but all the way down to the project, right? Is this additional? Is this permanent? Is this transparent? Are there buffer pools for leakage? So I'm not saying that there's no place for carbon offsets or carbon removal credits within a climate strategy, but I am saying that they have to be used sparingly and with a high degree of caution. Um, one of my questions is uh, you talked, I mean, about the decision to go into M&A to expand your business. And I was wondering about the company culture and what you did towards like bringing those people together in terms of the, I mean, the power and the importance of really integrating not only the companies, but the people that come from each of these companies. Yeah. So in the case of the acquisition that we made at Planet Forward, it was a very small team that that came over. And so it was probably a lighter lift. Um, but at the same time, the, the key person that we brought over is no longer with the organization, sort of by design. We knew that ultimately they were looking for something in the longer term that was different than what the role of like a CTO of a venture-backed startup was going to be, right? A certain level of ease and a certain level of intensity, just we're never going to be able to share the same space. And so I think just being upfront and honest about not only where people are right now, but where they'll be in 12 months or 24 months is really important because the reality is that most of the people that are in the organization that you acquire are not going to be with the acquiring organization forever. Um, then I have the other perspective of, of having been acquired, right? So Patagonia bought Moonshot. And in the case of that, you know, my whole team went over and are happy there and are doing really well. And that was a condition of us wanting to work together. Um, so in the case where a condition of you wanting to work with the other company is that the people are going to continue to work together, then it is so important to take the time to get to know each other. You know, your relationship is necessary as two parties who have never interacted before is like, of course, underdeveloped at the point that you decide to merge the organizations. And so you have to find hacks and shortcuts to create that relationship, which means spending time, having conversations, asking questions, doing references. And so sometimes I think what you have to do is slow the process down a bit. You know, we think so much about like, what's the purchase price? What are the terms? What's the timing? But sometimes you have to be willing to slow down the M&A process to allow time for the teams to just really get to know each other. And it doesn't mean that you ultimately wouldn't do the deal, but it does mean that you're able to address some of the things pre-transaction that are easier to address before you've made the acquisition. My co-founder and I are doing something somewhat similar to Planet Forward, but for scope two emissions. And um, one thing I was really interested about what you were saying about revolutionizing this sleepy sort of consultant dominated industry is we're finding even though we might be able to build a tech solution, 
a lot of institutions specifically in the public sector still want that personal consultant relationship and i'm really interested on how you how you might have gone about um convincing them that a purely tech solution is the way to go for them i don't yeah you know at planet forward right now we have a balance of software and services right so the urgency of speed with which we need to take action on climate means that we can't be gated behind consultants it's just too slow but at the same time you know there's a lot of context that comes into play when you're doing this work within real companies not just on spreadsheets and so people have questions and so we have a balance we're probably 75% of our solution is delivered through our software product, but 25% of our solution is delivered by our team. You know, half of my organization are climate scientists, and they spend a lot of time working through questions with customers. Ultimately, I absolutely hope I can make that sh that mix, you know, from 75, 25, something closer to 90, 10, but I don't believe that there'll ever be a near future state where I'm 100%. Um, automated. I just don't think it'll happen. Sure thing. Yeah. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for the talk. So we actually work in the in the carbon market and we work um, in climate tech as well. And I completely agree with the points you made about quality and credibility regarding carbon credits. And I was curious to understand at Planet Forward, I know you guys use offsets. So how do you actually select the carbon projects that you guys engage with and what are the kind of quality checks that you put in place? Yeah. So we um, first look at the organization that wants to purchase the offsets and we understand what they're doing and what their supply chain looks like. And wherever possible, we try to screen for projects that are close to the supply chain, right? So if there's a supply chain that's primarily focused in North America, we're gonna look for offset projects that are in that geography and try to keep that proximity. The second thing is we're not just screening at the provider level, we're actually screening the individual projects. And we're using the same frameworks that you're probably familiar with. We're looking for you know, additionality, we're looking for transparency, we're looking for permanence. Where we believe leakage is an issue, uh, such as for many tree planting schemes, we're looking to, to make sure that the appropriate buffer pool is in place. And so it isn't that we're doing anything that's incredibly revolutionary as it relates to vetting offsets. I think the thing that's different is um, we're doing it on behalf of a customer as a third party, and so we can be a bit more objective. And then the final piece of advice that we give is we ask people to buy portfolios of projects because there's a good risk mitigation strategy in just diversifying your risk. You don't want to be um, <clears throat> at the whim of any one project or one provider. It's often a good idea to diversify it across a few. So always buying a portfolio, always screening at the project level, not just the provider level, and really using that framework to evaluate. Fortunately, we are out of time for questions, but please feel free to come up and ask Julia questions afterwards. She's gonna hang out for a little bit longer. Uh, it has been so awesome and such a privilege to spend time with you, Julia. So thank you. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.